Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm John Marzalek, a host for the podcast Queer Voices of the South, a LGBTQ plus studies channel podcast of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking to Francisco Galarte about his book, Brown Transfigurations, Rethinking Race, Gender, and Sexuality in Chacanx Latinx Studies, published by University of Texas Press. Within queer, transgender, and Latinx and Chickenx cultural politics, brown transgender narratives are frequently silenced and erased. Brown trans subjects are treated as deceptive, unnatural, non-existent, or impossible. Their bodies, lives, and material circumstances represented through tropes and used as metaphors. Restoring personhood and agency to these subjects, Francisco J. Galarte advances brown transfiguration as a theoretical framework to describe how transness and brownness coexist within the larger queer, trans, and Latinx historical experiences. Brown Transfigurations presents a collection of representations that reveal the repression of brown trans narratives and make that repression visible and palatable. Golarte examines the violent deaths of two transgender Latinas and the corresponding narratives that emerged about their lives, analyzes the invisibility of Brown's trans masculinity in Chicana feminist works, and explores how issues such as immigration rights activism can be imagined as part of an LGBTQ rights-based political platform. This book considers the context in which Brown trans narratives appear, how they circulate, and how they are reproduced in politics, sexual cultures, and racialized economies. Francisco, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, John. I I really am happy to be here and to be speaking with you about the book. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, I'm I'm so excited to have you here and talk about talk to you about this book. I, I read through it and it just led to so many questions um, that I think our listeners are going to be excited to um, hear about. Wonderful. Um. I wonder, first of all, though, if you could begin by telling our listeners about yourself. Certainly. Um, right now, I'm based out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm an assistant professor at the University of New Mexico in the mm-hmm. Department of American Studies and in the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies program. Uh, I was also mm-hmm. recently appointed the director of the Feminist Research Institute at the University of New Mexico. And um, I also am one of the general editors of Transgender Studies, Transgender Studies Quarterly, uh, published by Duke University Press. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So I, I got a lot of my plate these days. <laughs> you do, and congratulations on the new position. That's really exciting. Thank you. Yeah. So um, what led you to write this book? Uh, what led me to write this book is it really, I, I like to think maybe it, it started even when I was a kid mm-hmm. uh, as someone who is trans and really coming to understand uh, my identity as a small town. I, I grew up uh, just about 20 miles north of the U.S.-Mexico border uh, mm-hmm. in a very rural area of the Southwest in California. And so um, narratives about trans people and uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual folks were just something that I didn't have access to, especially narratives that were like people like me. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that once I became familiarized with the um, kind of methods and theories of Chicana and Chicano studies and Latino and Latino studies as an undergraduate, that provided a point of entry to really kind of, on the one hand, make sense of race and racialization. Uh, but then later, as I went to graduate school and began to learn queer theory, queer studies, and transgender studies, I was really able to identify, um, find those narratives and representations of individuals um, who were trans and, and brown like me. Um, mm-hmm. But also, I found a lot of problems with 
how those representations circulated. And so, you know, the book really is a culmination of my own process as being, you know, a kid, a trans kid, and not really knowing necessarily having the words or vocabulary to to mm-hmm. say that, you know, and I, and I was yeah. a kid. I was born in, in, in 1981, right? So I grew up in the 80s. Um, and then, you know, being a academic in transgender studies and Chicana, Chicano studies and Latina, Latino studies, um, I also, I saw an opportunity to bring these fields into conversation and to really kind of um, delve into these narratives and, and do some reparative work in how we understand um, these very complex identities of being a racialized trans subject. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I, this is not a question I planned to ask, but as I was listening to you, it made, made me wonder if you've had other trans brown people contact you and say that your book really had an impact on them because of, not, you know, not having someone write to their experience. Uh, I mean, not about the book quite yet since it just came out, but I mean, mm-hmm. as I've been invited to speak at universities and um, as my other essays have kind of circulated in the world where my uh, peers and colleagues have taught that work, I, I have had folks who have reached out to me and, and told me that it's very meaningful just that someone like me is a professor and mm-hmm. writes about these narratives and, and has expressed uh, just something that that's, that that's something very powerful for them. And I, I do appreciate it very much and take it very seriously. And, and that's what I think about when um, I was writing the book and it was hard. And also when I'm uh, continuing to do the work that I do now and, and I feel overwhelmed, I, I do think about those individuals who have reached out to me because that's it's meaningful to them and 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 that that and, and that's meaningful and powerful for me as well and sustaining. Yeah, I, th- I think it's wonderful, and I, I I imagine you are going to have a lot of people reach out to you about about this book because I can I can really see how it's so important for people to you know hear about their hear about experiences that are similar to the experiences that they've they've had. Mm-hmm. Um. Before we jump in further, I wondered for those listeners who get confused about different terms of identity, if you could just explain the difference um, to those listeners between um, Latina and Chicana, and also Latina, Latino, Latinx, and Chicano, Chicana, and Chicanx. Yeah, of course. I I think that there's, it's always good to start with terminology and to to bring everyone on a, on a solid ground and, and foundation in when we're using those terms. And, and so the way that I'd like to um, define Chicana and Chicano, um, I'll start with those terms, is mm-hmm. those identity formations come out of the 1960 civil rights movement among Mexican-Americans. So mm-hmm. Chicana and Chicano can, on the one hand, refer to folks who are Mexican-American descent. Um, but on the other hand, I think a lot of people understand it to be um, politically motivated and have uh, a sense of um, political critique in the understanding of the experience of Mexican-Americans in the United States, especially with its origins out of the civil rights movement, the Chicano movement specifically um, during the mid-1960s. And the term itself circulated mostly among student activists and then later Mm -hmm. has come to really kind of shape what we might understand to be um, Mexican-American cultural productions that are politically inspired influence. Um, so we can talk about Chicana art, Chicano art. Um, Chicana and Chicano are obviously gendered, right? So Chicana refers to a more female-identified experience mm-hmm. and the Chicano re- refers to the more male-identified experience. Um, and then I'll go to Latina and Latino, which is more of an umbrella term and I think a more contemporary term and a term that most folks are going to be familiar with. Um, right, to talk right. about Latino politics, Latino culture. And very broadly, I, I would understand it as a kind of more umbrella term that seeks to really kind of encompass or account for folks who are not only Mexican, Mexican-American, but are Central American, um, mm-hmm. who are from the Caribbean from, you know, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, and then also folks from South America. Um, and so who are living in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. And and again, the markers are, the gendered markers refer to kind of the masculine and the feminine with the A and the O. Um, I, I wouldn't 
some people I think would consider Latina and Latino to be politicized in some types of ways, but uh, mm-hmm. I, it doesn't have for me the same kind of um, origins or roots as Chicana and Chicano do. Um, but I think it's political in the sense that when we talk about kind of the Latina vote or the Latino vote, it, it, it can be politicized in a particular way and meaningful for communities to um, have a, a sense of belonging in, in that term or collectivity. Sure, um, sure. And then when we get to the question of the X, which can be used by folks uh, in terms of Chicanx or Latinx, uh, I understand that to be a turn um, within uh, a more contemporary generation to really account for the limits of binary of the binary in relationship to gender uh, and sexuality. Um, and so I think the X represents a term, a turn not towards gender neutrality per se, but a turn towards not wanting to discipline uh, folks into rigid, gendered, binaristic understandings of their racial identity and what that might mean for them. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it also, you know, is pushing against the ways in which uh, the Spanish language itself is traditionally very gendered. Um, and so I think the X is, is there to stand in as a way to be more capacious in relationship mm-hmm. to gender presentation, gender identity, sexual identity, and the ways that, you know, gender and sexuality themselves are, are not separate categories and, and, you know, inform each other in nuanced ways uh, that a simple A or an O after Chigana or Chigano might not attend to somebody's identity. Right, right. And that leads to my next question, which is going all the way to the end of the book, you, mm-hmm. you challenge the reader to... Um, I think you say read the X, um, mm-hmm. and I, could you could you talk about what you mean? You're you're using it to just talk about um, a series of photographs you have, and you said mm-hmm. that um that you you're reading the X. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so the the coda in the book, the very end, um, was written. I think as most ends of the books are very kind of quickly, where you're trying to sum up and and have mm-hmm. the book culminate in this kind of. Um, climactic way. And, and for me, by the time I had finished the book, I, I, I had organized the book around a binary. The first two chapters are mm-hmm. about trans women. The second two chapters are about trans masculinity. Um, and then I, I felt like, you know, I, I do think that there's room for uh, gender um, non-binary kind of conversations within the trans politics and trying to expose, uh, expose in the book. And, and so the way for me to do that was to recover these photographs that were taken in the 1960s during a very politicized era that circulated. And these are photos by Anthony Friedkin uh, mm-hmm. of a um, figure or a person named Jim Ariana. Uh, and so this person, um, Jim or Ariana, you know, lived their lives in proximity to some of the most celebrated kind of Chicana gay Chicano artists, right? That kind of mm-hmm. very bohemian scene in the 1960s that folks are uh, continually drawn back to. Um, and specifically, the, I mean, the most specific example would be in LA, there was a huge uh, ex- exhibit called Access Mundo, which recovered the work of Mundo Mesa, a very mm-hmm. important gay Chicano uh, artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Ariana and Jim was in Mundo Mesa's orbit there in, was a close friend of theirs. And uh, as I learned more about Jim or Ariana and this figure, when I saw Jim or Ariana and saw them kind of move between the masculine and the feminine, I, I, didn't, I didn't feel like calling them a, a gay Chicano really kind of got at what you see in the photos and how um, the representation of this person pulls you in uh, to their own kind of being or place the photos i think of this person are very striking as are they are, they are. as as are the narratives of um the per, the photographer who photographed jim jim friedkin who photographed jim and ariana jim and ariana was this photographer's favorite subject and i think it's mm-hmm. because of 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 what jim ariana uh how they pull you in and so reading for the x here is a practice that i wanted to think about in the sense that you know, one the point one of the points I make in the book is I don't think that we should completely abandon the binary. I think for some folks it's meaningful and it doesn't have to be disciplining depending on you know how you are able to um, embody em, em, embody that. 
um, and enact a particular politic that for me has to be feminist in a part, mm -hmm. in, in a way. Um, but then at the same time, you know, uh, non-binary is, 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 is equally, I think, as liberatory and has possibilities that, you know, Jim Ariana is able to wield um, in the 1960s in a time when we think of, you know, racialized communities as being very kind of heterosexist, heteronormative, um, disciplining, and certainly Jim and Ariana experiences that kind of disciplining. But then here we are again, you know, in, you know, 2018, when this exhibit uh, is, is circulating, and, and I see Jim and Ariana being disciplined into a kind of compulsory gay Chicano identity, when I think that there's various terms or ways that we can describe their, um, their, the portraiture of them in and how they're dressed in the signals and the cues that are given that don't necessarily, you know, lead us to read this person uh, in one way or another. So reading for the X is reading for that gender non-normativity that is um, ambiguous, but yet politicized, yet compelling, mm -hmm. um, and asks us to question or rethink how we might understand uh, gender and sexuality as it circulates within these visual representations. Mm -hmm. I thought it was brilliant that you had the way you did that, where you had the part one and the part two as binary, and then you brought in the um, non-binary at the end. I thought that was really well done. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of, I'm really skipping around here and I hope that's okay with you because oh, I'm going yeah, all okay. the way back to the beginning now mm -hmm. and to the, to the cover and uh, our listeners will be able to see a picture of the cover, you mm -hmm. know, when the podcast is released. But for those who aren't looking at it right now, I wondered if you could describe the photograph on the cover and, and tell us about what you hope to represent with it. Uh, yeah, the, the photo in the cover, um, it was, it was selected by the press, but it, it is a part of a photo series that I write about in the book. And it's this mm -hmm. photo series called The Key Sides. Um, and so the uh, photo series itself um, wanted to reimagine these covers of these um, lowrider, this, this lowrider music oldies collection called um, the, uh, the East Side Stories. And yeah, so yeah. this particular representation that the press picked for the cover, it's not one that I write about, but I think it certainly gets at kind of the crux of the, of the book in the sense that I wanted to have a representation of a trans or gender nonconforming person who signals a particular cultural location. And so the figure on the book is modeled in some way after Frida Kahlo, kind of, kind of generally. Um, but is resting on a low rider, a beautiful, you know, white uh, low rider that is mm -hmm. um, that in the backdrop is the bay is is a is a bay bridge in the in the Bay Area in San Francisco, and so I just thought it brought all those, and I'm sure that the the designers at the press, aside from it being a beautiful um, photo, um, and I'm blanking out on the uh, name of the photographer, but I'm going to remember it right now, Carrie Orvik. So it's Carrie mm -hmm. Orvik, um, mm -hmm. who is based in the Bay Area, who collaborated with uh, DJ Amy Martinez and um, Vero Mahano. Uh, they were a collective, and they're the ones that conceived of this photo series called The Q-Sides. Oh. Um, and so uh, I think that the photo itself, the cover, really kind of brings out the heart of the book, which is this racialized, gendered um, uh, configuration uh, where we see Chicano culture really kind of commingling with gender non-normativity um, mm -hmm. in this beautiful way. And it is a beautiful photograph. Yeah. yeah. Um, you write about the attempts to silence and erase, and I'm, I'm quoting and paraphrasing here, silence and erase the brown trans narrative within queer, Chicana, Chicano, and Latina, Latino culture. And, and mm -hmm. you talk about that the brown trans narrative is considered a problem to overall these other cultures in society. Could you talk about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so one of the reasons why in the book I use brown as a frame is, is an analytical frame as opposed to just Chicana or Chicano or just mm -hmm. Latino or Latino is uh, I think the late Jose Esteban Munoz really understood brown to be a, a category that 
uh, exceeded a racial category, not in the sense that race is depoliticized or not central, that racial politics aren't part of it, but rather, you know, that brownness, right, as mm-hmm. a, not a catch-all, but a category that 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 um, has us think about racialized embodiment like uh, the embodiment on the cover, say, for example, of this trans person, right, who is who's dressed in um, the clothes of Frida Kahlo, right, which is gesturing mm-hmm. towards a particular cultural position. Um, uh, and, and it's also political in a particular way. So Brown stands in as kind of this way to think about a racial formation in relationship to me towards complex gender configurations or queer sexuality, right? So it's like a way to bring the cultural politics uh, in to interface with the queer and the sex, the, the queer and the gender and the sexual politics that I'm getting at in the book. And so in looking for the silences or when I gesture to that mm-hmm. is I'm really wanting to um, draw attention to the way that, you know, trans studies, queer studies, Chicana studies, Chicana, Chicano studies, Latino, Latino studies aren't necessarily makes foreclose certain possibilities and and in in talking and speaking with each other and what i really wanted to do is i want in the case study chapters of the book is to demonstrate those foreclosures and then attempt to um attempt to 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 uh supersede them right to create a possibility where we where trans studies queer studies latinx studies chicanx studies can you know, commingle and I can borrow from different analytics and methods and, and frameworks to tell stories of individuals or figures that are very nuanced that, you know, I wouldn't be able to tell them in the way I wanted to tell them if I wasn't having these areas of study talk to each other in very specific mm. types of ways. The intersectionality of it all. Yes. Yeah. And and how does this relate to um you know the the title of your book, Brown Trans Brown Transfiguration. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was the 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 it's the brown and the trans, right? So the two categories. Mm-hmm. So brown is sounding more as kind of a a racial uh, category, um, but also that is gendered and and queered in in interesting ways. Uh, and then figuration is kind of the flagging of uh, these representations, these very flat representations. Um, and then the trans is uh, the analytic or the frame that you know cuts through the brownness um, and also allows us to you know understand these subjects as they are figured within narratives. So mm-hmm. it's you know brownness, transness, and the figurations is kind of the the figuring of a trans subject or kind of flat representation. Um, and so for me, I, I wanted to use the analytics of brownness and of trans studies um, to really draw out the narratives that are hidden be- hidden behind these flat uh, figurations or representations of the, the subjects or um, topics that I write about in the book. Hmm. You know, throughout the book, you, as you know, because you're the author, of course, but, you know, you, you have, um, you talk about the experiences of Chicano trans and Chicanx trans people through photography, through novels, through movies, through um, some um, some terrible experiences of trans violence. And I wondered as you were, you know, relating these to the reader and as you were writing your book, how your own identity came into play, how it impacted you. And I, I'm especially curious because when I wrote my book on same-sex couples, I, you know, I, I looked back and realized my identity as a gay man in a relationship couldn't help but impact me as I wrote. And I, I was curious how that affected you. Yeah, I mean, it certainly did. And I think that's what make, that's what made writing the book so hard. It was really hard for me to write this book. And it, it, it took what feels like now an, an, an inordinate amount of time yeah. um, uh, because of the, the my closeness or my proximity to the project, both because I am a you know Chicano who transitioned who is trans and was going mm-hmm. through that process as I was writing and oh, wow. learning and researching um, these individuals right and learning and learning about their own kind of transitions and mm-hmm. and especially for the individuals like Gwen Araujo and um, Angie Zapata the two trans women who were victims of very horrible um, yeah. violent yeah. Uh, um, 
violent incident violent incidents you know for me those were um the hardest to write both because i i am a masculine identified person and so my own vulnerabilities are very different than my trans sisters right like i i don't experience the world in the same way they did and i felt like i wanted to write about these narratives um in a way that others hadn't written before um but i also wanted to do so in a way that didn't um you know, presume a kind of knowledge of what fem- racialized femininity is or was, mm-hmm. right? How it moves to the world, how their what their racialized femininity was. So that was very hard because it was both because I felt a sense of connection to them because they were brown like me, and and I write about this in Arajo's chapter when I met when Arajo's mother Sylvia Guerrero. You know, when she learned that I was from Brawley, the the town that I grew up in. You know, mm-hmm. she told me that Gwen was was born in Brawley and lived there for a time. So to know that to 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 have that close proximity or connection, it felt compelling to write. But then I also knew there was a limitation to how I could write about these stories, and I don't want to write on behalf of trans women of color because they are capable of writing their own stories. Um, yeah, yeah. But but yet I I I felt like for the larger project of the book. Um, I would do a disservice to others who want, later wanted to write about trans um, Latinas and Latinos by not offering an insight into trans femininity in whatever way that I could. Um, mm. And in relationship to the chapters on masculinity, I mean, I think that my perspective and my experience and my growth into my own masculinity is all over those chapters. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, yeah. So it might look a little different. I mean, my idea around these things, I know, will probably be different in about 10 years, right? I might be like, why did I say that? Or why am I making that <laughs> argument? But um, nonetheless, it, it helped me move through my own experiences. And hopefully it, it brings something to, it brings a point of conversation around the texts and the topics that I grapple with in relationship to masculinity that others can build on um, mm-hmm. or, you know, refute or whatever. But I mean, I, I think it, I think it's a start to a conversation and a different take on a conversation that folks have been having. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot makes a lot of sense. Um, in chapter two, you just you just mentioned this um, mm-hmm. this person. You, you discuss the murder of Angie Zapata mm-hmm. um, as a terrible example of transphobic violence, obviously. And mm-hmm. you know, I wondered for you, why is it important to tell this story? Uh, for me, Angie Zapata's story was really important to tell because it happens just before the passage of the Matthew Shepard um, mm-hmm. and that uh, James Byrd Jr. Uh, anti-hate hate crime bill, uh, which was, uh, there was a big federal, there's a big push to, to, to pass this hate crime legislation um, at the federal level and among lots of LGBT advocacy groups. And I felt that Angie Zapata's narrative and story really kind of got buried in this push I felt like her narrative was used uh, as kind of evidence for the need for this type of bill. Um, mm-hmm. But I really wanted to look at the the complexity of this story because in this story of Angie Zapata, I feel like we get more of the picture in terms of the relationship of a very kind of toxic, toxic Chicano masculinity in relationship to someone like Angie Zapata, right? Who mm-hmm. very clearly from her narrative, we can see that this, that she's killed by someone who she is in a very, in a romantic relationship with, or it might've been kind of a survival situation as well, because, you know, she also in gestures in some of the documents that in some of the, some of the texts, you know, her friends mentioned that she was dating this guy and she was going to have him, you know, help her out financially, right? Which is, it's fine, you know, like I'm not yeah. going to, I don't pathologize her for that. Um, she would be the first person to do that, so right, or the last, yeah. Right. Um, and so, and so I wanted to, so I wanted to tell this story because I felt like we get, we see how both um, Sabata herself is pathologized by the people who are trying to bring justice to um, her murder, like the police, right? Yeah. Um, but then also how the man who is in jail for the rest of his life, um, Andrade, right, is also pathologized in a particular way as well, which really kind of draws, his story shows us the limitations of Chicano masculinity and kind of how Chicano masculinity is read by um, 
you know, institutions like the police, right? So, you know, it's kind of like a a, a, a lose-lose situation for everyone involved. There's kind of an impossibility that haunts this story between, in the sense that, you know, how could someone like, how could someone like him, who is a former gang member, represented as a former gang member, a repeat offender, right? And what mm-hmm. universe can him and someone like Angie Zapata, who's a working class trans yeah. woman, right? Um, you know, in what in what world do they get to, you know, have a relationship and where is masculinity, Chicano masculinity not so limited where the only, you know, option that he has is to commit this act of violence, right? Like I think mm-hmm. what I'm trying to do in the chapter is to juxtapose the two figurations of them both to really show, you know, something about racialized female masculinity that is empowering for Zapata because I try to bring out that nuance of like who she was as a person and how her family mm-hmm. supported her in various ways. So yeah. she pushes against the, the typical narrative where, where racialized families are unsupportive. Um, and then on the other hand, we have, you know, Andrade, who is definitely going, he's always already going to be convicted of murder and be sentenced to life. Like he's not a, a character, he's not a, a figure who is going to have a mistrial, who's going to be recuperated by, you know, folks who are transphobic because he, he, he hits all the markers of people's racist imaginaries around, you know, um, Mexican American gang members, um, repeat offenders and, and, and folks who are criminalized in the way that he is. Terrible stereotype. Yeah. Yeah, so I wanted to bring, I wanted to flush those things, those two things out together and really try to give a nuanced account of both the social location, the political climate at the time, and how this constellation of events comes together to tell this story. And and to keep in mind, part of what I bring out in this chapter too is that, you know, she's murdered a couple years after um, these huge um, raids by uh, ICE on these meatpacking plants of a large, it's a larger kind of xenophobic anti-immigrant moment um, in U.S. history. Like the, these are the largest raids in 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 the U.S. at that particular moment to weed out undocumented workers. Um, yeah. And so there's already kind of this very nativist environment in this part of Colorado. Um, in and we all and for the most part we think of Colorado as a blue state, right? But we see these very kind of horrible nativist kind of politics playing out in Colorado at the same time where we might think of Colorado as a more liberal kind of blue uh, lean uh, area or environment where where ideally someone like Zapata, you know, should be able to thrive. You th- Yeah, but then you, as you know, you have pockets of um, conservatism in even the most bluest state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, my, mind, my mind's going to the very beginning of your book, when mm-hmm. as you were talking about the, the, you know, the terrible immigration rates, when you're talking about a, a scene in um, the Obama White House mm-hmm. where a transgender Chicano, I believe, woman um, confronts the president, and she's really um, the 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 rest of the LGBTQ people there don't support her and really come down on her pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So for, for me, that moment where Jenny said Gutierrez, you know, decides to interrupt this, um, it's kind of, it's like a, uh, a reception, right. For LGBT leaders to celebrate pride month, to kick off pride mm-hmm. month at the white house, you know, and so it's supposed to be the celebration and she, you know, calls attention and very brilliantly interrupts Obama and, and to say, you know, how can we be celebrating LGBT rights when your administration is, you know, keeping trans women detained in very horrible and horrendous con- conditions, right? Um, and and so this is a moment that illustrates to me kind of what uh, a very um, potent racialized trans femininity can do and disrupt and can enact politically in this way that forces all of these um, it just forces all the, it, it reveals, not forces, but it reveals a lot of divisions within uh, LGBT politics mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, more broadly. And so for me, 
that really teaches me what uh, racialized, you know, trans feminine immigrant women are able to do, right? Um, in when given when they when they seize a political moment, when they are given a political moment, um, you know, who they are and how and the femininity that they wield. I understand that to be uh, some of the most potent and uh, beautiful and moving um, uh, figurations or configurations of racialized uh, femininity. And is this, is this part of what you were describing also throughout your book about, um, you know, the attempts to silence and erase the Brown trans narrative by different, by different groups of people? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Right. So in, in that example, it is the, um, you know, LGBT mainstream politics, right. Even the president of the United States is telling this woman um, to, to be quiet, right. Mm-hmm. To, that she's being disrespectful, that she's not respectable, right? Um, that she's not doing things, she's not doing politics the right way. Um, and then in other instances with, um, if I think about, you know, the chapter that's about Gwen Araujo in the movie, um, uh, A Girl Like Me, um, yeah. that film to me is also in another way about how her mom is doing everything the wrong way. Um, the way that I read the film is, is very much about how um, it relies on this kind of familial parental kind of at fault for uh mm. the the sequence of events that happened to Gwen when I I know I mean because I know Sylvia Guerrero and I've heard her narrative many times I, I know that's not the case you know I know that mm. parents make mistakes but those mistakes um and as she's learning about trans identity and you know Gwen Araujo's story happens in the early 2000s you know which is just almost a world apart from what we understand about trans care mm trans rights, trans experience today. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that that film itself relies on, the, on, on, um, on, you know, in some ways it makes transness palpable, palatable or understandable if there's someone to blame for this outcome. And unfortunately, I think the movie ultimately blames Sylvia Guerrero for her parenting, being a single mother, um, for the sequence of events to unravel in the way that it does. Yeah, and and I you, and you touch on different places in the book, the pathologizing the um, this whole narrative that's that's thr- really pushed on people um, that there's something wrong with them and that mm-hmm. you know that that it, it, yeah that it's pathological really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I really I really wanted to recuperate that and, and flip them and flip those understandings on their heads when when I could. Yeah, and you know, and I, I wondered if you could talk about you. You introduced a concept um, that you you um, you quoted from a theorist, and I'm not sure if I'm gonna pronounce it right, but I think it was synthome. Mm-hmm. And um, for those of us who are new to that term, I wondered if you could unpack it for us, and you know, tell us how it's related to what you were writing about. Uh, yeah, so in uh, one of the chapters on on masculinity, I, I do you know int- work with. Uh, Lacan, Jacques Lacan's uh, concept of the symptom, um, because it's a, a concept that has been used by um, trans scholars who grapple and kind of think through psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for the, the symptom is a way to, for trans studies folks who are writing in psychoanalysis is a way to think about the experience of a um, of the trans experience in kind of these psychoanalytic terms. And so for me, that was really useful just because there's also Latinx studies um, folks who use the same concept of the symptom. And so mm-hmm. the symptom is um, a way to really kind of think about, um, let me take a minute here to kind of try to make this as, as as it's easy not easy as, to describe. It's yeah. not easy to describe at all, though. Um, so the is a way to account for in the in the trans the transsexual experience, right? Um, mm-hmm. I have a, a a quote that I pull from in the book um, that is re, that is kind of uh, related to the scar, right? So when we think about transsexuality, most often than not, we think about kind of the actual surgery and what people do mm-hmm. with their bodies, and right. I think that you know, um, folks who do psychoanalysis and trans studies have taken up to the symptom because the symptom itself is a way to account for 
um, the relationship between the body and fantasy and the psyche to enable a desire to come to fruition, if that makes sense, right? So um, the the quote in the book that I'm thinking about or that I'm going to read from right here is um, the the scar, right? So we talk about mm-hmm. scar, it could be a scar to the psyche, it could be a scar, like a literal scar in the body, right? Uh, uh, right. The scar is a carving made by the self, a creation of the body that is made to suit a fantasy in order to make space for desire. So uh, the syndrome can represent a psychoanalytic concept that helps us make sense of how people might transform their bodies uh, in a way to access um, the uh, uh, a kind of culmination or a, a grasping at that desire of, to be who they are, to be who they want to be, right? To the way that um, most, say, for example, uh, more conservative or kind of turf feminists, right? So feminists who are very much anti-trans understand, mm-hmm. you know, a manipulation of the body to be, say, for example, a kind of um, violation of what it means to be a woman or to of, of womanhood, right? Whereas, you know, the symptom doesn't pathologize in that way, right? Like it doesn't understand uh, the body to be kind of the central signifier. Um, it, it, it's a way to, the symptom accounts for that way to, for the psyche to kind of bend into itself and to realize, you know, that that fan, that image of themselves and who they want to be. I absolutely love that that section because, I, um, and I, I'm not sure if I was reading this correctly, but this idea that what other people pathologized, um, somebody would would see as a part of them and part of their psyche that was really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 the in that chapter, I do kind of um, position the figure of the zoot suitor or the pachuco and right, the zoot suitor right. were you know, Mexican-American young men who wore these very kind of um, beautiful um, garments, right, that were understood to be as pathological in the sense that they were excess, right? They were displays of excess during World War II, where, you know, during World War II, everyone was encouraged to do the war effort, and doing the war effort Mm -hmm. is to conserve, right? So rather than, you know conserving fabric they were displaying kind of in excess of this and they do so to have access to a sense of luxury in their identity and their embodiment and how they move to the world because these young men also had access to uh, a wage right that they didn't have access to prior to world war ii given the the the, the huge boom in like jobs related to the war industry uh. right so you know if we think about these um, pathologized figures like the Pachuco and the Zoot Suitor, they were understood to be excessively racialized, right? Um, kind of, uh, although looked down upon for luxurating so much in their um, outward appearance, like the aesthetics, the suits, the clothes, the hair. Um, and I and and I felt like that works to think about a kind of racialized trans masculinity because not only do racialized trans subjects, I mean, not all, of course, uh, have mm-hmm. surgery, but certainly folks manipulate their bodies and their embodiments to luxurate in themselves, right? To be able Mm -hmm. to have a sense of, uh, to access a sense of self that for folks who are cis, right? Who are not trans, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that might be a given to luxurate in themselves, right? In terms of their gender or their racial identity. And for racialized trans subjects, you know, that luxuration, right? That performance of excessiveness, that embodiment of excessiveness and kind of the 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 living in that um, pride and that excessive excessiveness, you know, is something that is not a given. It's something that that trans subjects seek out for themselves. Uh, which is not to say that seeking that out and you know transitioning and things like that, things like that are, are not painful. But certainly there is a pleasure in in the act of doing so, whether it's fleeting, whether it's forever. That I, I can't say for everyone, but I mean. Part of the the point here is that for racialized trans subjects, the luxury, the luxuration, the 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 pleasure in you know crafting your body, your mm-hmm. yourself, um, in a way that aligns with you know your gender and racial identity um, can be really powerful, and I think that it should be. I think there should be pleasure in it, um, mm-hmm. and 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 so I think that the symptom, or at least how 
these psychoanalysts who are much more versed in psych- psychoanalysis than I um, are, are are wanting to draw out by the use of Lacan's uh, symptom uh, to mm. kind of flip that kind of pathologization, as we mentioned before, on its head and and to and to really lean into um, privileging that kind of um, impractical uh, mm-hmm. in some ways for in some folks' eyes. Um, uh, kind of um, self-luxuration. Yeah, and you know, um, I looked up a picture because I was curious of what a zoot suit looked like, um, and it, it was like you said, excess material, like um, baggy pants, and um, mm-hmm. kind of a, the pants were pulled up higher, you know, above the waist, and so like I, mm-hmm. I can see how that would be considered very luxurious when you said people were conserving, and mm-hmm. I think you talk about in the book how um, these figures were were seen as being. Um, rebels you know going against what the norms were mm-hmm. and i guess is that part of the intersection also between um chicano masculinity and synthematic transsexual as you say about this idea that if you are changing your body then you're also being um you know you're being rebellious you're being nonconformist. yes i mean i think so i think it's i think it's a it's a it's a kind of a sense of pure joy or pleasure that is mm-hmm. not for anyone but oneself really honestly yeah right yeah. um and so if we think about like transition and transsexuality especially for folks who are racialized right and so yeah, you know, tra- yeah. trans trans people of color you know tend to be uh the most marginalized in terms of economic That's um, right. yeah. uh access to like you know low-paying jobs or no jobs or no health care, right? So then if you are of the are, are marginalized economically, um, you know, and uh, racially, you know, marginalized or discriminated against, then for some, uh, probably the only pleasure, right, or or respite from that might be the joy or the the the, the pleasure that emerges from being able to craft yourself in the way in which you have access to. So that might be clothes. It might be, you know, pictures. It might be whatever it might be yeah, and how folks yeah. represent or make sense of their bodily identities. Um, you know, that pure joy that is for no one but themselves, right, um, I think is really important. And I wanted to use that as a way to think about um, trans masculinity um, in a way that could be, not so fraught or so um, entrapped as the type of masculinity that we saw in the case of Alan Andrade, who's this very kind of uh, repressed, very transphobic, very mm-hmm. homophobic figure in the chapter for Angie Zapata. But when we come to trans masculinity, right? Like I, I think that in the figures that I bring out in those chapters, I'm bringing out these figures that are not wedded to these very rigid notions of masculinity, but rather are, you know, very, um, very much um, embodying that self, uh, that self joy, a pure joy in who they are, and mm. really putting that out into the world and, and not falling into the trap of uh, limiting what uh, uh, racialized kind of trans masculine presentation or identity or politic might be. Yeah, and that reminds me about in chapter three, you talk about the territorial struggles of this mm-hmm. war between Chicana butches, as they're as mm-hmm. they self-identifies as, and female to male transgender folks. So what was that what's that all about? Yeah, I, I really wanted to um uh situate this larger historical kind of um uh gender kind of battle that was happening in the nineteen nineties among mm-hmm. Mostly, you know, um, uh, white feminists and white trans men, to be quite honest. I mean, that's the, the majority mm-hmm. of the discourse, or at least the the writing is happening between these two communities publicly. And so yeah. when I say publicly, it's happening in this kind of very public um, back and forth between Jack Halberstam. Uh, before Female Masculinity has been published, he publishes this essay that is kind of his take on you know, FTM, identity, mm-hmm. trans masculinity, and is, and, you know, trans men at that time saw him appropriating, you know, FTM or trans masculinity as a kind of a stand-in for these postmodern kind of flexible understandings of gender. 
and for you know these trans guys in the 1990s who who really struggled to access care and were really kind of holding on to a a particular sense of masculinity that I would understand as close to cis masculinity as you can, or at least in how they're representing it to be, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to see, you know, well, what's uh, you know, what are Chicana feminists or Chicana, you know, producers who are also feminists at this time? You know, how are are they a part of this debate? Are they, you know, outwardly, um, you know, claiming or holding on to kind of this butch identity as the um, the the most radical or the most kind of um, celebrated type of you know gender nonconforming masculinity are they pushing back against you know FTMs at this time and there is that really amazing film um, that I write about in that chapter um, or maybe it's the next chapter I think it's in the next chapter. Um, uh, Mind, mind if I call you sir, which has right, right. has some of those narratives. But in chapter three, um, to go back to what you asked about, in chapter three, I am looking at the writings of, you know, Shuri Moraga and um, really wanting to, I understand her to be a very formative and very influential um, figure in Chicano feminism and an authority in some ways around what Chicano feminist politics look like and a leader and a voice for that. And um, I wanted to, you know, go through her older works to see if there is some kind of, um, you know, I, I want to be as gentle as I can because I do respect, <laughs> I do respect her as a figure and, and she's someone who's important to me in my life yeah. and my intellectual yeah. genealogy, you know, to see if there is that overlying kind of resistance or misreading of transsexuality. Um, and I think that there uh-huh. is. I mean, I think that um, I think that in her writings we can see a particular leaning towards uh, an anti-body modification, an anti-Western medicine intervention type of situation. That's kind of what I see um, uh, in her writings, and it's not just in the new writings because she did have an essay uh, that was published in her last collection of essays uh, that is uh, called the Chicana. Uh, Chicana Dyke Codex. Um, in that book, she has an essay where she is particularly pathologizing around, you know, trans men and and, and talking about this disappearance of Chicana butches or questioning yeah, whether, yeah. you know, questioning whether trans men are being too hasty in their decision to change their bodies to have top surgery or whatever or take hormones, right? Uh, and for her, that was a that represented an anxiety around the future of feminist politics, right? If, mm-hmm. you know, Chicana butches are choosing masculinity over femininity. Um, and I don't understand femininity and masculinity to work in those types of ways. Um, right. Uh, and that there's a competition, right? I don't think that, I don't think that masculinity itself, it's not a limited resource. There's certainly different types of ways that folks can understand and mold um, Chicana Chicana or Chicano masculinity, right? Or Latinx masculinity. Like, I think mm-hmm. that there's there's lots of room to really kind of be masculine. Um, and so I really wanted to bring something to bear upon what where I saw Chicana feminist politics, their take on that kind of gender battle, that battle or that question as to whether butches are disappearing. And my conclusion was, is that I do feel that Chicano feminists, even though they weren't overtly writing you know, anti-trans things in the mm-hmm. 1990s, that they were certainly informed by a larger trend towards anti-trans trans politics in feminist politics at the time. It's not overt, but, you know, there's a way to understand Chicana Butch identity or, you know, any kind of, um, you know, gender non-conforming masculinity as not trans, that there has yeah. to be a way that this Chicana butchness has to be constructed in direct opposition or in a kind of overt refuting of trans identity as a possibility within the Chicana Chicano culture as something that's unnatural. Mm-hmm. Right. And so people people who are threatened by by this, and it, I think at one point you say, let's see, um the you know, I think you say the FTM slash butch border wars was related to Chicano cultural politics and the fear that the Chicano nation would disappear. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. So I, I do think that at that point, and then in 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 these writings, the, the novel that I write about in that chapter is um, uh, by Carla Trujillo, and it is um, oh, why am I blanking on the title? What Night Brings. Um, yeah, yeah. That and and I understand Chigan, uh, Carla Trujillo to be a founding kind of important figure of Chicana lesbian politics. Um, mm. And Chicana lesbian politics and feminism at that time had struggled so much just to get Chicano nationalists, um, you know, these very sexist, heterosexist, heteronormative, you know, men to even acknowledge that a possibility or a universe in which Chicanas can love each other and sleep together mm -hmm. and have that, right? Um, and also write from that position and give us a theory about gender and feminism around that position. Um, and then when, when the trans turn comes, right, like, of course, there's going to be a desire to kind of protect all, everything that's been done to get to where they have, where they, there are writers, there are novels by Chicano lesbians who are, that are being published and circulated. We do have those narratives that folks are uncovering and circulating. Um, and I, I understand the desire to protect, you know, Chicano nationalism in the sense that the point where we acknowledge trans, you know, Chicanas and Chicanos as a subjectivity that is possible within that universe, within the cultural politics of whatever we might, of, of what Chicano nationalism is, mm -hmm. to me that, that undoes um, what Chicano masculinity or Chicano femininity is in a particular way. It's, it, 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 it makes you question um, mm -hmm. how the political kind of agendas or conceptions or debates around gender and sexuality, it undoes a lot of the work that has been done up until this point. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that, you know, uh, one example is if we think of reproductive rights within Chicano mm -hmm. feminism, um, reproductive rights are defined primarily through a very essentialized understanding of womanhood. Right? right. So asking right. what does reproductive rights look like for trans subjects, you know, would mean a deprivileging or a de-essentializing uh, of mm. gender in a particular way, which in itself mm -hmm. is not an attack on, you know, motherhood or women who are, are wedded to a biological understanding of, of, um, of what it means to be a woman. But certainly there has to be room for other folks who, you know, just don't fit in within those boundaries. And we have to change what that kind what the political aims and what the terms might be. Um, mm. And so, so for me, trans represents that disruption that I think folks aren't necessarily ready to take on quite yet. So I hope the book does some work to get us there. But... Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because it's what you were talking about earlier when we were talking about reading the X, that, you know, there's mm -hmm. room for, there's room for, um, more than binary. Right. Yeah. You know, another concept I wanted to see if you if you kind of expound on was um, you talk about this concept, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right, um, called dolor? Uh, dolor. 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 Yeah, um, yeah. Or, yeah, or loss in the, mm -hmm. the Chicanx experience. Could you talk about that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that loss um, is a big part of how um, racialized subjects understand their identity. Like, Mm -hmm. So it could be as simple as for like someone who is of immigrant experience of second generation who experiences a loss of language, right? Um, that yeah, loss of language yeah. really kind of informs uh, a part of who they are, right? Like grappling with that, like, the how that's unresolved, what it might mean to recuperate it. In the case of trans subjects, right? Um, I think that trans subjects undergo multiple losses. I think it could be the loss of family. Uh, biological, you know, understandings of family in some instances. Uh, it could be the loss of um, a sense of self that they have crafted for a lifetime before that they transition, right? A loss of a history. Um, uh, and so I think that loss or dolor, right? It, that's my way of attending to um, how that loss informs uh, racialized trans identities. And I think that it's not just for trans people. I think that a lot of like racialized subjects and, and other minoritized subjects um, uh, do experience a loss and, they, and, and loss is a constituent, is a part of the formation of our mm. identities, right? Like we're always trying to um, 
get over whatever loss we might experience in our life. But I think that psychoanalysis will tell us that we can't always, you know, recuperate those losses. And so the losses become integrated into, into who we are. Um, mm. You say, you say that, that, that um, this, is, this concept is different from empathy or sympathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do. I think that um, empathy and, and sympathy, especially in the case of the Arajo, I think that trans women's narratives get used a lot, or at least narratives of violence get used a lot to draw people in to draw attention to the fact that they aren't trans and so that makes them on the one hand thankful that they're not trans because this, this probably could never happen to them. Mm. Um, and I think empathy is that buffer to not, that doesn't force one to um, necessarily, you know, interrogate that distance, right. Of, you know, not being that of that identity, but, you know, on the other side of feeling like empathy for someone at the same time, on the other hand, on the other, in the other hand, you do feel that sense of relief, right? That you are not of that identity, that that didn't happen to you. And I understand dolor to be a frame that can be shared um, in different Mm -hmm. ways, um, Mm -hmm. especially across um, transracialized subjects. And also like in the case of um, Gwen Arajo and, her mother or in Angie Zapata and her family, right? Like these families um, experience a, one of the most extreme forms of loss. Like their daughters are, you know, taken from them very violently, very brutally. And that loss is never really recuperable. Um, and also leads to um, significant challenges that the families experience. Like, you know, Cuenavajo's mother, Sylvia Guerrero, you know, was never able to go back to work after this happened to her daughter. Um, mm. Angie Zapata's family, like, you know, one of Angie Zapata's sister is, suffers a, a hate-motivated crime. Um, her other sister, you know, uh, is killed by a drunk driver, right? So it's all of this kind of repetition of loss. And I think the Lord is a cultural frame, which asks us not to try to forget or to, re- like, you know, um, to resolve the loss, I think just kind of dwelling in it has a is more is is more is more real in the sense that this is kind of how most of us, you know, deal with loss is that we don't necessarily um, get over it, um, but it doesn't necessarily, but it doesn't always make us stuck. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess I guess the it's it's different, but it reminds me of the concept of minority stress a little bit. It's, it's totally different. But I was thinking about how, for any racial racialized person in our country or anyone who's queer um, or trans, there's this constant stress that you're going to be treated differently or discriminated against or face violence, and mm-hmm. and how somebody. Um, how we all face this loss of never being treated in society um, with the same privilege that other groups are. Mm-hmm. Is that is that also does that also fit into dollar? Yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I mean, I think if we're getting at the level in in terms of how um, minoritized, you know, folks might might accumulate a part, the particular stresses of that yeah i think that's part of the lord right like mm-hmm. to not to understand as under to understand or to live the world as as feeling like peripheral right as feeling marginalized like i do think that that is that constitutes part of of that loss right that you incorporate into in, into into who you are and how you move mm-hmm. to the world and i think for some it's more extreme and some it might cause like the more extreme kind of somatic effects, right? Like, I do think that like, you know, violence is direct or indirect, right? Really affect our health um, and our, you know, ability to, to have longer lifespans and things like that. So microaggressions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, I think if in that frame that you're talking about, I do think the Lord could be a way to attend to the cumulative effects of that, right? Like, um, and then uh, of, of of those experiences where the Lord is kind of the the frame that I might identify how um, subjects are 
grappling or making sense of this or not, right? So mm -hmm. in the sense of, to give examples from the book, right? Like obviously in the chapter on transmasculinity, in the last chapter, chapter four, I end with these figures who, um, uh, this figure Prado, right? Who has accessed a sense of transmasculinity that is relational with his brother, right? That is mm -hmm. a way that he makes sense of, for him that isn't, it. He, his, his, I do kind of point out some losses for him in, 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 in his identity, but then, you know, he also um, is able to make sense of those losses and that dolor and that pain um, through accessing modes that are pleasurable, that are life-sustaining, that are, that might transform how we do, um, how we do things. I, th I thought that the, the story of CK, I think that may have been in the same chapter, was so powerful to me also, where CK has been living as a um, as a trans male all these years, and um, the police take take him in, and um, he faces this tremendous loss when it's almost like they're taking away his masculinity in this one scene. Mm -hmm. And that, that really struck me as so powerful, and, and part of that whole loss that you were talking about. Uh, yeah, I think CK's story is um, a story that I have been wanting, that I found just as I was finishing the book, to be quite honest, um, in like foot in, in obscure footnotes, which is how often, oftentimes we find things, you know, as, as scholars. Um, mm -hmm. But CK, CK also represents a, a story similar to me, a story that is similar to that of Jim or Ariana at the end of the book, where you know, yeah. in the 1960s, they are just, um, you know, their their lives, their identities as subjects who are don't have the don't have access to trans care or even mm -hmm. necessarily the vocabulary understanding that of trans of trans transgender that we have contemporarily today, but are living it and embodying it in a way, right? Um, that yeah. is that makes sense to them, right? But then also very mm -hmm. clearly we see how, even though it makes sense to them, uh, it's very obvious that it doesn't make sense to everyone else <laughs> in terms mm -hmm. of when they might encounter institutions or they might encounter or institutions, like in the case of CK, he encounters the police, right? And the police are the right, ones that, right. that, that rip him from a life that he was clearly living very normatively, um, in 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 terms of for him for himself where it was fulfilling in some ways right um and so so yeah i, I think that i think that there's a, a way that it does kind of run through ck story as well yeah yeah and wow francisco i'm looking at the time and believe it or not but we've been talking over an hour oh, wow. um so be, but before we end though i wanted to ask you if you could tell our listeners where they can get a copy of your book yeah definitely so um you can get a copy of the book uh, directly from the University of Texas Press. Um, it is the first book in the in a series called Latinx Studies Now, uh, mm -hmm. which is um, uh, edited by uh, Nicole Ida Hernandez uh, and Lorca Garcia Peña. Um, mm. And so um, you can look up Latinx Studies Now, and the book should come up. Or um, but I recommend buying it directly from University Tex the University of Texas Press because we got to support our academic presses. That's uh, right. That's right. And we will also have a link when we um, provide a description of the book with this podcast. We'll also have a link for people to um, access it there also. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me today, Francisco. It's been a fascinating conversation, and I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk with you this afternoon. Great. Thanks. And um, everyone, please come back and join us for our next episode of Queer Voices of the South on the New Books Network.